I'd like to read from Galatians 4. Formerly you did not know God. You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Or are you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong, as you know, I, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing to me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? These people are jealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of the divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is from above is free and she is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. You who are never in labour, because more are the children of the desolate woman than that of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for reading, and good morning, everyone. As Andre said, my name's Carl. I'm the senior pastor here at Trinity Church Unley, and it's really 
Great to be with you this morning. We're looking at Galatians chapter 4. If you've got a leaflet, you'll see there's really two sections to what I want to talk about this morning. Um, so if you've got that, you'll be able to follow along. The first section is kind of application um, for Paul. He's been talking for now three chapters, speaking to the Galatians, and he hits a bit of application for us in the first part of chapter 4. And then we're going to tackle this tricky bit, this bit about Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac, the bit that may not have made a whole lot of sense as Peter was reading it to you. And we'll try and understand this morning what that's about and how that might apply to us today. Uh, Next week, I just want to let you know, next week we've got an all-in service. Mike and Jack are going to be working on this all-in service. So the idea is that the kids will be in the whole morning with us. Uh, You might think that's going to be a nightmare in one sense. I hope it isn't going to be that. They've got a really interesting morning plan with a couple of different kids' talks, some smaller sermons, kind of a different way of doing church together. And that gives our kids' leaders and the kids' programs a break. But it also gets us as a church an opportunity to share time together with our kids all together in the room next next week. So I'm looking forward to that. And then after that, we've got two weeks with Jeff Lynn. Some of you will have um, heard Jeff speak before. Jeff is uh, the AFES um, uh, National Director for South Australia and Northern Territory, a state director, I should say. And Jeff's a great preacher, and he'll be here um, speaking to us for two weeks following on. So that'll be at the start of the school term. Well, let's, um, let's turn, turn our minds to Galatians this morning. I want to begin by asking you a question about, have you heard of this lady called Rosa Parks? I wonder if you've heard of her. I've got a photo of her on the screen behind. Some of you will know her. Um, uh, she's been called the first lady of the civil rights movement or the mother of the freedom movement. And she's probably best known for the Montgomery bus boycott. If you've never heard of that, you're probably not alone. But in 1955, on the 1st of December, Rosa Parks was asked by a bus driver to vacate the seat she was sitting in to make room to allow a white passenger to sit in her place. And she refused on that day. Now, unthinkable as this might be for us today, that was actually in defiance of the law at the time. And yet Rosa had had enough at that point. In an interview that she gave the following year, she said something like this. She said, I would have to know for once and for all what rights I had as a human being and as a citizen. So on that day, Rosa Parks believed that she had equal right to that seat and her belief led to a changed behaviour. That is, she decided not to vacate her seat. And she ended up being arrested on that day and her her newfound notoriety led to her losing her job and her husband lost her job and they had to move from where they were so that they could find work. And for much of her life, she was persecuted for her belief and her subsequent behaviour, belief that she had equal right as a person. Now, today it might sort of seem really foreign and distant for us living here in Adelaide, but this happened just back in 1955. Many of us would have been alive back then. This is not necessarily ancient history. Okay, so why am I telling you this? How does this connect in with Galatians? Well, I think there's much in Rosa Parks' story that resonates with what we've read in Galatians chapter 4 today. Here's the link for us. Here's the link. What we believe must shape how we act. If we believe, as Paul says in chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 14, if we believe that Jesus redeemed us, 
in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to us as Gentiles through Jesus Christ by faith. If we believe that, if we really believe it, then that must shape our behavior. Now, the implications for the Galatians to act upon what they've been told is that they would stop adding to the gospel message so that it becomes, as Paul says, no gospel at all. He's saying, practice what you believe. What do they believe? That salvation comes by grace through faith. And they should therefore be ready to stop adding to the gospel. And what he goes on to say in this passage is that they should be ready to expel those who are giving them a different message. Now I want us to see today that the implications for us today really, I guess, aren't so different to what they were for the Galatians back then. If we really believe that this book that I'm holding, if we really believe that this book reveals God to us, if we believe that it reveals his plan for us and his will for us as a church, then we should follow it. We should not add or subtract to this book. Now, we must, of course, work hard to understand what this book says for us today and in our our present culture. But once we've done that hard work, I think we should live by it. Here's the thing for us. I reckon that might be costly. You might not have experienced that today, but perhaps in years to come, following and acting upon what this book says might mean that we'll be persecuted as a church. In fact, I suggest it's going to be likely that we'll be persecuted. But here's the thing, what other option do we have? If we believe these words to be good and true and right and proper, we must follow them. And yet, as obvious as that is, I don't think it's easy. It wasn't easy for the Galatians. And so Paul goes to great effort to persuade them and to convict them. And he lent into them in a way that was energy sapping and emotional and troubling and deep and kind of it was all rolled up into one for Paul. And I think in this passage that Peter's just read to us, we see Paul's heart on view. He's greatly troubled by what he's heard is happening in Galatia. And he's perplexed and he's fearful, and so he's pleading with this church. And I want you to see the agony that he has on view in this passage. He wants the Galatians to remember the gospel and to cling to it and to not be blown here and there by those who are undermining their beliefs or forcing them to do different things. Paul's pleading with them. I want to have a look at this with me. We're going to, just going to read to you from verses 8 to 11. I think the words are going to pop up on the screen behind me. This is 8 to 11 of Galatians chapter 4. This is what Paul says. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. You see the the problem that Paul's addressing here? The Galatians are at risk of drifting away from what they'd first heard. You see how concerned Paul about, how concerned he is? His heart's on view here, isn't it? He really cares deeply 
about how the Galatians are behaving. Because Paul thinks that what he taught them and what they believe, that really matters. He says to these these Christians in Galatia, he says, in the past you didn't know God. And you were enslaved by nature to those things that are not God's. That's you were bound to your pagan customs and ways. You were enslaved to practices of worship and you were forced to praise something that, that wasn't even a God. You were worshipping false gods. Something that's really no God at all. And that's just a waste of time and energy and, and everything. And Paul says they were slaves to those things, bound to the practices that accompanied that and everything that went along with their pagan beliefs. And then in verse 9, he goes on, he says, but now that you know God, and then he corrects himself. And he says, or rather, are known by God. See, in the past, Paul says, you didn't know the true God. And the next, the kind of natural flow on from that would be to say, but now you do know God. And that's indeed what he first says. It's true, but... He then corrects himself because what really matters for Paul is not that they know God, but that God knows them. You see that? It's an aside from the text really, but I think it's a lovely detail here. See, what really matters is not what we know with our heads, but that we're counted as God's own. It's not really what our head knowledge, that's not really what matters. But what really matters is being part of God's family. Known by him. I love that because I think it fits really neatly with this idea that there's nothing we can do to earn God's favour. Or earn our place in God's family. What matters is that we're known by him, saved by him. Anyway, back to the flow of the text. Here's the crux. Now that you are known by God, Galatians, how can you turn back to those those weak and miserable forces that you used to worship? How is it that you're willing to give up on the grace of the gospel and turn back to these weak and miserable forces? That's his argument. And I think at first glance we might miss some of the sting in this passage, particularly if you're reading this through the eyes of a Jew. Because what Paul's really doing here, isn't it, is he's equating Judaism with paganism. And that must have really ruffled a few feathers, I reckon. See, these Galatians, they were not Jews. They'd come to know Jesus and now they're adding Jewish practices into their belief. They were pagans who've come to know Jesus and now they're being persuaded to add these Jewish things. And Paul says, you're turning back to weak and miserable forces. The way forward that doesn't rely on Jesus and the grace that he freely gives. And that's no hope at all for them. Paul's saying anything that distracts you from the reality that you're saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus, well, that's just going to shipwreck you. And if that's Judaism, Paul's pleading with them, stop. If it's paganism, he's pleading with them, change. Look to Jesus. Don't give up on the good start that you've already made. And for those of you who have been working through this book over the last couple of months, perhaps uh, following along as Jack's been preaching, I wonder if the, over the period of the last month or so you've, you've given any thought to the question of why. Why might the Galatians be turning back to these weak and miserable forces? Why might they be turning back towards these Jewish additions? Why are they doing these things? Why are they going back to their previous enslavement? I think it's a good question for us to ask. 
Because it might help shed some light on why we today might turn away from following the one true gospel. I'm borrowing some of these ideas from David Jackman. Here's the first idea as to, I think, why they might be turning back in their, their thinking. First idea is that I think faith alone in Christ alone is hard for us as people. So what comes more naturally to us is the idea that if we work hard at something, we'll be rewarded for that thing. Our natural inclination then is to add rules and traditions to things that we think will make us more acceptable to God. We think the more we work, the harder we work, the better we'll be accepted. We love the idea, don't we, of being deserving of something, of being rewarded. We like to say to ourselves, I deserve this, whether it's an ice cream after a hard day of work or whether it's looking at our spiritual lives. Faith alone, in Christ alone, is hard, but it's the truth of the gospel. The second reason, I reckon, why they might be turning back to their old ways seems at first to be more applicable to the ancient church, but I think it also applies to us today. Here it is. If you can add to the gospel, then you don't need to be as committed to following a crucified criminal. See, in the time where this letter was written, Judaism was a legitimate religion, was something that the Romans, ruling Romans of the time, accepted, but Christianity was not a legitimate religion. You were following after a crucified criminal. And so for those in the Galatian church, I reckon following the practices of the Judaistic religion meant that they could kind of hide under this religious umbrella and be sheltered by it. That's safer there under that umbrella than out on your own, sticking your neck out for Jesus. Now here's a question, do we feel that pressure today? Do we feel that pressure today? I reckon we probably do. Because I think mainstream Christianity, at least in the West, it is, I think, subject and moves a little to the trends of the day. Sometimes these movements are minor and don't particularly matter, but I wonder if at times these movements really do compromise the truth of the gospel. And if we stick with the religious establishment, if we shelter under the religious establishment like an umbrella in a rainstorm, we might feel safer than if we step out and follow after Jesus. But what does the Bible teach? Faith alone in Jesus alone. Here's what Paul says to the Galatians, if we give up on Jesus, then we're turning back to the weak and miserable forces and being enslaved to them all over again. So what what then do we do? Well, Paul uh, gets to his first kind of uh, point of instruction in the whole of the letter in verse 12. And this is what he says to them. I want you to see um, in verse 12, have a look how heartfelt it is. We read it in verse 12, chapter 4. Paul says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. This is his first instruction in the whole of the letter so far. The first time he tells them to do something, and he's pleading with them. Paul has a genuine love and concern for this church. 
In verse 13, he goes on to remind them of how he came to know them in the first place. He came came to them seeking treatment from some sort of illness. We, We don't know exactly what that illness was. Commentators suggest that it could have been malaria. And so perhaps going to the higher altitudes that they were found in Galatia meant there were less mosquitoes and therefore a reprieve from malaria. Some suggest that he may have had some sort of illness to do with his eyes. They read that in from verse 15. But the reality is, we really don't know. But evidently, Paul was sick when he came to Galatia, and that made him at least a perceived trial for them. Now, up until last year, probably many of us wouldn't really have been able to understand what he meant by that. Up until 2020, most of us were pretty unconcerned with other people's sicknesses and diseases. But over the last year or so, I think many of us have come to see how quarantine works and and how those who are sick are kind of kept away from those who are healthy. In verse 14, we read that far from being locked away or quarantined or ostracized, Paul was welcomed by the Galatians. He was welcomed as though he was an angel from God. So kind were they, Paul says that they would have torn out their own eyes for them. I take it that this is a kind of similar phrase to what we say today, where we say something like, I'd give, you, give my right arm for you. Here's the thing, when Paul came to the church in Galatia, he was warmly welcomed. And he says now in this letter, where is my warm welcome now? Because now he feels more like an enemy. The church in Galatia has been influenced by those who are zealous to win them over for something that is no good. You know, I think this is a message that we need to keep hearing today. There is a shift, I think, happening in the global church. It's subtle and it's slow, but over the last, I guess, 50 to 100 years, there's been a slow shift away from the way in which the Bible is read and understood. I think the key question for us in our generation today must be something like this. Is this God's word for us today? Is this God's word? Does this tell us what he's done for us and how he wants us to live our lives today? Or was this just a text that was useful in times gone by? And here at Trinity Church Only, I want to plead with you As Paul pleads with the church in Galatia, don't turn away from Jesus. Don't turn away from his words. Don't turn away from the salvation that is found only in him. Don't turn away from God's word to us. I think that's how this passage applies to us today. That's the first section of chapter 4. The second section we see there in verses 21 to 31 of your Bibles, if you've got it there. And in this section, Paul is making really his, his final argument, if you like, in his case against those who are adding to the gospel. I'm going to call them the Judaizers from now on. Uh, For his argument, Paul uses the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. You can read about that story of those people if you're not familiar with them in in the book of Genesis. But to make sense of what Paul's saying, we need to just be reminded of the background. The first thing you need to know is Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And Abraham was married to Sarah. And God promised them that they would father many children. And I take it that for years they tried to do just that. But nothing happened. 
And Sarah grew old and seemed unable to conceive. And so eventually Sarah took things into her own hands and she offered her slave Hagar to Abraham. And Hagar conceived in the normal natural way and gave birth to Ishmael. Fourteen years later, Isaac was born to Sarah. That time she was a very old woman, well beyond the normal age for bearing children. And so Isaac was born clearly according to God's promise. Now that's a very condensed summary of the events that you can read about in Genesis. And here in Galatians, Paul picks up on this story as part of his argument against these Judaizers. And my guess is that he's using this story probably because Abraham was a popular character for the Judaizers and a popular person for them to use as they tried to persuade the Galatian church to adopt Jewish customs. So I hope you're with me so far. Here's where it gets a little bit tricky. Paul goes on to say that he's speaking figuratively when he uses this story. What does he mean by that? Well, I think what he's saying is that he's using these Old Testament real people and this real story as an allegory. We can see that in verse 24. He says he's speaking figuratively. In other words, Paul is using the story of Abraham and Sarah's life to say something that the original story about Abraham and Sarah never meant to convey. Now, let me say that's not a good way for us to read the Bible today. Not a good way to read an original story and to make it say something else. In fact, the only person who legitimately can do this is Paul, and he can do that because he's an apostle. We can't do that because we're not apostles. Here's what I think Paul's trying to do. He's making a comparison. And to help you see this, I've got it on a table on the screen behind me. If Andrew could throw that up. Thank you. He's making a comparison. The comparison involves two mothers, Hagar and Sarah, and their two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And these two mothers symbolize two covenants. Hagar corresponds to Sinai and the law and the physical city of Jerusalem and therefore to slavery. On the other hand, Sarah corresponds to the promise and to the heavenly city of Jerusalem and to freedom. And Paul expands on his allegory by linking the theme of Sarah's barrenness with that of Israel in exile and he compares it to the promise of a fruitful heavenly Jerusalem. Now how does he do that? Well, it's sort of about that quote that he links there in verse 27. It says, a time is coming when the barrenness of Israel will be no longer, when it will be transformed into a great and prosperous nation. Now, incidentally, this quote comes from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. And if you know your Bibles, you'll know that flows right on from the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53, where we see the suffering servant, we know today as Jesus, bearing the sins of many. And Paul knows that. He's doing this on purpose. He's reminding his readers here of the promise. Jesus was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's been crushed. He suffered. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He did it to bear the iniquities of the people. And so Paul is linking all of this, the barrenness of Sarah, the promise of the fruitfulness of the heavenly Jerusalem to the freedom that is found in Jesus. And he's lumping this all together. He's saying there are two options, slavery or freedom. And freedom is found in Christ. Does that make sense? It's a tricky passage. 
He then goes on to speak about the application of all of this. And this is kind of why I think in the first place he's, he's brought this comparison forward. And we see the application in verses 28 and 29. And this seems to be what really matters for Paul. So let me read it to you. He says this in verse 28 and 29. Now you brothers and sisters, speaking to the church in Galatia, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time the son was born according to the flesh, persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. So just as Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael and Isaac was the son of the promise, so those who are being persecuted today or in the church of Galatia were being persecuted by the Judaizers, they're clearly those who have then inherited the promise. He's saying essentially, you know you're in the right, Galatians. You know you're in the right because you're being persecuted. You know you're part of the promise because you're being persecuted. You know you're born by the Spirit because you're being persecuted. See how Paul's joining the dots here? And the solution to all of this, says Paul, well, just as Hagar and Ishmael were expelled, so the Judaizers should be expelled from the church. I don't think he's speaking here about just getting rid of ethnic Jews. No, he's saying rather get rid of those who are perverting the gospel. Get rid of those who are adding to the gospel so that their teaching will not do you any more harm. The church in Galatia was facing real persecution. They were being asked to add to the gospel. Scott McKnight in his commentary on Galatians gives four kind of points of of strategy that the early church used to deal with persecution. And I thought that'd be useful just for us to hear today. Here's the four points of, of um, knowledge they knew. They knew firstly that Christ was persecuted. When you're being given a hard time, it's good to remember that Christ was persecuted. They re- secondly, they remember that God's messengers were persecuted when they proclaimed the gospel. Thirdly, they remember that God's people have frequently suffered the wrath of ungodly people Because they're faithful to God's will. And fourthly, they remembered that God will eventually vindicate his people by making things right, both by establishing justice and by raising people from among the dead. They're the four things that the early church used to remember. In Scott McKnight's own words, he says, they feared God, not people. They knew this life was not all. They took courage from Jesus and from the many who were opposed in the life of the church. What does this all mean for us today? Well, if we're persecuted today, does that indicate that we must be in the right? What do you think? I'm not sure that we can use Paul's argument for that here. I'm not sure that we can say that. But will we as a church be persecuted for sticking up for the gospel? I want to suggest probably, probably we will be. Should we bend then or should we yield to that? Well, Paul's pretty clear with the Galatian church, isn't he? He's shedding tears for them, in fact, I think. And he's saying, stick with the truth. Follow his example. Don't turn away from the truth of the gospel. I wonder what you think the pressure points are going to be for us as a church as we move in the years ahead. I'm not sure that we can really accurately predict those things. But what I do know is that Paul would encourage us as a church, just like he's encouraging the church in Galatia, to stick to the truth of the gospel, 
He's reminding them of what it is that they believe and he's urging them to let their belief shape their convictions and shape their behavior. There is only one gospel, Paul says. Therefore, there is only one place to find freedom. And that's with Christ alone. May pray that we'd be a church that would stay firm to our beliefs. Father God, we thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian church. We thank you for their experience. We thank you that through your word, you have helped us to know what the truth of the gospel is. We pray that you would give us courage to stand firm to it, despite what happens around us in the world. I thank you for the example of Paul. We pray that we would follow after him as he follows after Christ. Amen.